Yeah, I would love to see a future where security doesn't get in the way, right? Because if they're just going to not do it or pick bad passwords, let's make it as user-friendly as possible. You are listening to the Mindful Business Security Show, brought to you by Focivity, where we answer your questions and simplify information security for small businesses. Get the clarity you need to focus on the things that matter. Welcome back to another episode of the Mindful Business Security Show. This is episode two. Today, we're talking about information security in private healthcare practices. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and connect with us on social media. We want to hear from you. Also, I'm excited to announce the new Mindful Business Security Show merch store. We've got show-branded coffee mugs, hoodies, t-shirts, stickers, and more at shop.mindfulsmbshow.com. Support the show and get yours today. Our guest host today is another amazing talent in the industry. He holds a PhD in computer science and is in the final stages of writing a book called Cybersecurity Myths and Misconceptions. He's closing in on two decades at the National Security Agency, where he's focused on industry outreach, or at least that's what he's allowed to tell me. And if that wasn't enough, he also owns a consulting firm that specializes in helping small private practice healthcare clinics navigate HIPAA compliance and safeguarding patient data. When he isn't working, he's an accomplished violinist and choral musician. Give a warm welcome to our guest host today, Josiah Dykstra. Thanks for coming on the show, Josiah. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you're a real polymath. I have heard other people say that. I do what I love to do, and that includes a very wide, broad swath of interests. That's excellent. I love hearing people uh, with lots of hobbies and, and doing things to have fun in addition to work. People work too hard sometimes, so... Uh, so this may be top secret, but I have to ask, who are the suspicious cheese lords? That is a fine question and not top secret at all. Uh, I was a member of a choral ensemble in Washington, D.C. called the Suspicious Cheese Lords, which is a mouthful. Uh, this group has about a dozen men who sing a cappella, primarily Renaissance music. We met for dinner and, and we would sing and had great fun. The group's name uh, is sort of a tongue-in-cheek reference to a, um, a classical music piece, a motet by Thomas Tallis, called Sushipe Queso Domine. And those words, if you sort of tease them apart uh, after a little wine at least, uh, Sushipe sounds a little bit like suspicious, Queso sort of sounds like the Spanish for cheese, uh, and Domine is the actual word for lord. So suspicious cheese lords uh, was sort of a fun name for us to use. That's fantastic. How long did you perform together? Or are you still performing together? I was with them for about four years when I first moved to the Washington, D.C. area, and they have carried on uh, the tradition without me. All right. So I want to know more about the book that you have coming out about cybersecurity myths and misconceptions. Uh, tell us a little bit about what drew you to that topic. Yeah, this was a very fun book to write. Uh, we hope it's fun for the readers, too. Uh, this is a book written with two other co-authors, Lee Metcalf, who's at CERT at Carnegie Mellon, and uh, Professor Jean Spafford, who's at Purdue University. One of those co-authors, Lee Metcalf, was writing her previous book on cybersecurity science. And I had written a similar book some years ago and was reviewing it. 
she had a short chapter on the pitfalls of data analysis. And I thought that was really clever and it got my brain spinning about where else we see myths, um, avoidable mistakes, folk wisdom in cybersecurity. And the more that we talked about it, we more the more we thought that could be a book unto itself. So we brainstormed a few things and over time it ballooned into something like 175 myths. And Gene Spafford said he had been teaching a class on this at a university. And we really loved the idea of having somebody from government, me, somebody from industry, Lee, and somebody from academia, uh, Spaff, to combine our experiences. And between the three of us, we calculated almost 100 years of collective experience. So we wrote the book not as a textbook per se, but more as a sort of easy to read for any kind of user, whether you're in this field or not. Um, and so it was great fun. We uh, are looking forward to it coming out in January or February. Okay, so January, February. So that will be available very soon then. Pre-sales are available now wherever you buy books. Um, we have a beautiful cover. Um, Dr. Spafford's wife, who is another Dr. Spafford, hand-drew illustrations for the book. And you can see one of those on the cover. Awesome. Very good. How did you do the research as you were going through this process to pull all of these myths together? It was a mix of things. It was a lot of myths and misconceptions that we just had heard in our lives, but we learned a lot doing it. Certainly, I learned a lot about myths in statistics, which is not my sort of core area. We had to do a little bit of research um, given how many of the myths are about humans. So we had somebody who's a psychologist, for example, make sure we were telling the truth. And we had an attorney make sure the chapter on legal myths also was truthful. So we certainly learned a lot as we went. So what brought you to consulting in the healthcare industry? My wife is a doctor of audiology. She uh, does hearing and balance healthcare. She owns her own practice, a private practice clinic. And we've been together for a while, and I saw and met other audiologists like her and got to talking to them about sort of common environment situations, issues that they faced as business, small business owners that they were never taught in school, right? They, were, they learned healthcare in school, and they learned a little bit of how to run a business. That's pretty common. But I was giving informal advice, and then two or three years ago decided I can make this into a business. Uh, I have expertise I think people will pay for. And so I turned it into that kind of consulting. I have focused on everything that is both security and compliance. I think those are slightly different. Um, and so I give, for example, HIPAA security refreshers. This is something required by the law. And I can update that content because I experience it day in and day out. But I also will configure somebody's computer if they need that kind of help too. So everything in between. Okay. Sounds like training and you know, maybe some you know, policy help and all the way to hands, hands-on fingers to keyboard <laughs> configuring systems. Exactly. And people have very different needs. Some people are doing a great job already. I, I almost always start with a risk assessment. This is also required by HIPAA, and it is a good sort of benchmark for what is going very well and what are the areas that are in need of better compliance. And that, that helps me guide uh, what they do next. So I, I suppose to keep with a, a healthcare uh, analogy, you, you can't really 
prescribe if you don't diagnose first. You got to do the risk assessment to understand what's going on before you can really prescribe a, a direction or course of action. Oh, the analogy works very well. I'm sure that will come up in our conversation. Um, but yeah, the longer you wait to go see the doctor, the worse things get. So people uh, shouldn't put it off either. Absolutely. What do you see as some of the key differences in the cybersecurity challenges that are, are faced by small, independent healthcare practices versus some of the larger providers? This is a great question and one that I have thought a lot about. I think every size business, no matter how many, how much money you bring or how many employees you have, you can decide to have a budget line for security or not. That's true for a hospital. That's true for a one optometrist uh, clinic too. But not every business can afford to have a staff person or in-house expertise that can do that work. A great many people outsource that kind of thing. And so that makes a big difference, having it in inside or outside. I did a survey of 131 audiologists a couple of years ago because I wanted to sort of see what are their limitations. And I asked them that question, and 80% of them told me that they weren't doing more cybersecurity because they lacked expertise. That was far and away the winner. The next closest thing was money. I don't have enough money to do it. But as opposed to 80% without expertise, only 25% said we don't have enough money. Um, and then it was time as the third factor. So I really took that to heart a lot. Uh, and I use that to sort of understand that they probably can afford it, but really what they need is help with the expertise. So a, a hospital might have a staff of experts, but a private practice probably needs to outsource. I will say, however, that the size doesn't really correlate to risk. Now, yes, you have more people, and yes, there might be more spear phishing emails, but I don't expect the likelihood of a cyber attack to be any different for a hospital or a single person. Um, we don't in cybersecurity know what that probability is, but let's say it's 20% likely. It's 20% for a hospital and it's 20% more or less for an individual. Nobody is too small. This comes up in the, as a myth in the book that, quote unquote, I'm too small to be a victim. I think there's two misconceptions there. Uh, one is that small companies have nothing of value. Not true. If you have a computer, that attacker uh, wants access to your computer to commit crimes or mine cryptocurrency or something. And the second misconception is that it assumes that the attacker cares how big you are. Right, that they have picked you as a small business. That is very uncommon in my experience. Um, they are hugely opportunistic in their targeting. And sure, some attackers might go after healthcare because there's more ransom to be paid or something. But targeting a particular company or a person is really uh, time and labor intensive. So you can imagine a criminal who just wants to make money. I think it's unlikely that they will... Um, do that kind of targeting. And, and you mentioned in your, your survey that one of the things that came back uh, was was lack of expertise. Uh, outsourcing is a, a great way to, uh, you know, to fill that gap. But one of the things that I have experienced already just trying to find callers for the show uh, that I think relates to that is folks don't know what questions even to be asking. And when I you know, put out a call to for people who have questions about security in a certain area or a certain field. It's almost as if the the 
question is too broad to where the folks that I, I, I want to have come on the show and ask the questions, the small business leaders uh, and, and the non-technical, non-security practitioners don't know what questions to ask because it's so broad and such a, a vague question. Uh, what are some of the things that small healthcare practices should be thinking about regarding security? I could probably come up with a very long list, but let me try and be concise at least to start. I think the number one thing that people should do, and this is within their grasp, is to that healthcare analogy, which is basic cyber hygiene. We have taken that phrase uh, in cybersecurity from healthcare, in part because people understand it. In health, it's about washing your hands and brushing your teeth. There are equivalent things that small health practices should also be doing. And I say this because these are things that are broader than HIPAA. HIPAA doesn't say, for example, uh, that you should use multi-factor authentication, uh, right, to get a code to your phone when you log into your bank or your EHR or anything else. But that is good cyber hygiene. That's like washing your hands and brushing your teeth. Um, cyber hygiene is a small number of things. There are government websites that will tell you, for example, like make sure your software is updated, use good passwords or a password manager, um, be careful when you click on links. This is just everyday behavior um, that helps protect the business. It isn't precisely about healthcare, but it's useful for you whether you're sharing photos with friends or personal banking or managing a health practice. That cyber hygiene will help you do all of those things more securely. Now, in a, in a healthcare sense, the, the number one thing I always tell people is do a risk assessment. Understand what's going well. That is the right place to start. The law demands it. The law says that you must do that kind of assessment on a routine basis. And most of us in the, in the industry think that routine means yearly. And so there are plenty of people who have never done it. And that shouldn't discourage you from going. It's like saying, I don't want to go to the doctor and find out I have a problem, right? You need to do that. You need to do it in your health, in, in your life as a, as a human, and you need to do it in cyber. And what is a, a risk assessment? Because that may be a term that our listeners aren't familiar with. What's that look like? It very often starts with a questionnaire, and that's what mine does. I ask a series of questions, and the questions are formulated based on the HIPAA laws. So the questions ask things that the law says you must do. And those range from questions like, do you have individual logins for all your employees on every computer? Yes or no. And do you have an incident response plan? Yes or no. And then we talk together about are they, how does that sort of fit into your practice? And what I do in my, in my business is I prioritize these for the client. I say, you know what, there's 25 things we probably should do to remediate what, what we found in this assessment. These five things I think are the most cost effective, the most useful for you to do first. We should do them all, but that assessment helps us prioritize, well, you said that you have encryption turned on for all your computers. Great. We don't need to do that. That one's checked. You're compliant already. Excellent. Yeah. And and I imagine that coming out of that, uh, you know, the recommendations that you can give to the clients then are, are very actionable for them so they can get some real value out of that. You know, they, they know their current state based on the, the risk assessment and the, the results in the report. Uh, but does a, a roadmap then come out of that as well? It does. And the roadmap isn't all technical. It is here, here are things we can do over the next year until we check in again. But it's not 
100% about tweaks to your computer. A lot of HIPAA, for instance, is about policies, and that is usually the first line of defense. If there's no policy that says you can't hand out your passwords to people on the street, you don't, as a business owner, don't have any recourse if somebody does that, because they will come back and say, oh, you fired me for doing that, but you didn't say I couldn't. So the, it's often more helpful to have the policy first and then to implement it in technology. Yeah, I look at the, the policy as the, the strategy of, you know, high level, what is it we're going to do? And uh, all of the rest of the how we do it, uh, you know, those details tend to go into other documentations and process and, you know, standards and things like that. That's right, exactly. So we've got some callers on hold today uh, that work in private healthcare practices, uh, and they've got questions about cybersecurity. So let's go to the phones. Do the cybersecurity risks to your business have you confused? Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast. And sign up to be a caller on a future episode. So our first caller today we've got on the phone is Greg from Texas. Hello, Greg. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh what what can we what can we do for you? What sort of questions do you have for us today? So I do the IT work for my wife's small uh optometry practice. As I was setting it up, one of my goals coming from tech world was, you know, leaning heavily into security, getting all the individual users set up, and I was, you know, bringing some of my experience with identity and stuff into the picture and quickly ran into the problem that People wanted to be able to just sit down at a computer and start working. And really, the OS user selection experience is not super great for that. Um, each OS has different presentations. You have all these other things to split, split around for. Um, and then also the concept of a shared desktop is really difficult. You know, we've got six, seven workstations, people being able to sit down and do their work. What I was told a lot of places will do is they just have the same user at all the desktops. We ended up doing something very similar to that, but our EHR is separated and they do all have all the medical stuff is, you know, I protected behind individual users. It's kind of an okay in between as far as I'm concerned, but curious about other paths forward on this. I think that's a really common um, environment for people, uh, especially when people are moving and using the same workstation is not one person to one machine. The HIPAA laws talk about having individual logins, but as with most of HIPAA, it's pretty vague. And so whether that is an individual login, like a Windows screen unlock, that could uh, be the answer. But as you I think alluded to like having a common Windows login, but individual EHR logins also might fit the spirit of that law. And I've seen other people do that as well. I think what we want in the end, the outcome we want is to identify what user took what action. And so if one person is a rogue employee and they're stealing stuff out of the EHR, um, you would want to know that, but you would know that having the individual website logins, even if it's the same desktop. I was actually looking at some technology from a company 
that did proximity logins recently um, called Gatekeeper Proximity. They have their a company called Untethered Labs, where you have a little Bluetooth token, and they're trying to help people log in faster, so that when you walk up to the computer, the Bluetooth automatically logs you in, often to that common desktop, and then it also has a password manager that helps you log in securely to the website. Um, which means you don't have to sit there even for 10 seconds to type in your complicated password. So that's uh, probably a step farther than most people will want to go, but I think it takes your solution and maybe even streamlines it a little bit more. Do you think that would fit? I think that would be interesting. I did actually try that with login controls because they're all Linux desktops at this office. Login control and a um, YubiKey, but at the time it was crashing and it was also still, there was some part of that experience, but it's been a couple of years. I should try it again. Yeah, I would love to see a future where security doesn't get in the way, right? Because if they're just going to not do it or pick bad passwords, let's make it as user-friendly as possible. Yeah, it, it is better to have a token that they're using than to just not have anything. Exactly. Uh, my thoughts on this were were very similar to yours, uh, Josiah's. You know, focusing on removing friction and what is it that the the folks are actually trying to do? What is their what is their job and their end goal in their day to day work? And how do we remove friction from that? Um, I, I've seen them in in larger environments, and so cost may be a factor in these. But you know, the uh, you know badge in systems similar to the proximity system uh, that was mentioned, like you walk up and you've got a, a badge with a little, you know, RFID chip kind of thing that you tap on it that that logs you into the system and use a single sign on those things. And uh, you can streamline uh, these processes by carefully integrating technology. Uh, and then in small healthcare practices where budgets are, are tight, I think really the the real thing to look at is you know, where can we improve efficiency to help justify the cost of those things is we're going to put in a, a solution for single sign-on or something to allow proximity-based or card-based sign-on, and it's going to make things this much more efficient. Like we'll be able to treat more patients in a day to help sort of offset the cost and justify the cost of putting the stuff in um, so that security is a byproduct in a way and that you're you're focusing on on care uh, and the the end ultimate goal of, of what the people in the practice are, are trying to achieve. Yeah, that definitely kind of reinforces the thoughts that I had and leads me to where I need to get back into trying that path again. Um, so one of the other questions that I'm constantly running to, you know, I already mentioned I primarily run this as a Linux shop. It's my background and running a bunch of Linux desktops is way simpler than people give it credit for. But one of the most fun things is that every single time she's working with a new vendor, they're like, and your Windows server, and your Windows server, and here's a new Windows desktop that's built into the tool. And it's just like, oh, dear Lord. Like, I went from having, like, easy to maintain, easy to upgrade, and now I've got four random Windows machines sitting in here. And the, this is just what they have, like... How do we as an industry get this side to be safe when this is our common practices for new products and supporting them? 
So I see a very common thing. I, I see exactly the same thing in audiology where the computer runs a specialized piece of hardware and must be in a certain version of the operating system with no patches or whatever it might be. Um, and also, sure, they want to do the remote admin sort of for you. Um, I, I will say one sort of aside, I think the vendors, one, they don't have enough pressure to do anything differently, which is sort of too bad, but they also only know what works. So I had a vendor say, well, our software only works if you turn off your antivirus, so you have to turn off the antivirus. Well, it's not that they don't know that it doesn't work or they couldn't figure it out. They just know it doesn't work. And so that is their answer. Now, that means that I or you or anybody could do a little bit more work sometimes and get it functional, but they will say that's unsupported. I think my approach to this tends to be about isolation, um, especially if those are really old, unpatched kind of systems. And that isolation could be virtual machines that you have the ability to reset. It could be network segmentation, like with VLANs or something. Um, anything that means if I don't 100% trust this machine quite as much, at least I can isolate the fire if anything goes wrong. Um, I take it upon myself to install the update sort of as soon as the vendors say it's okay. I I am extra careful to lock down that machine to take off unnecessary accounts and services to like shrink the attack surface, which is what we would call it, right, in cybersecurity. Um, if there are individual, like limit the number of people who can touch it to, to only the staff that sort of need that. It's as always that kind of layered approach. That That would be my take. The network isolation part also gets really interesting. I had actually started off very network isolated, like servers over here, special machines over there, desktops over here, phones over there. And the more Windows machines we put in, the more that fell apart. Oh, no. Because they're like, okay, well, we need access to the server and the default firewall rules. And even if I would change them to address like, okay, it could talk to this network, like they just would struggle talking to the file server until and so i just actually ended up flattening the network which i'm really grumpy about yeah security is not the vendor's goal right their goal is to make sure that that software works and darn the security <laughs> and, and my experience in in healthcare has been more on the the provider uh saas provider side providing saas products for healthcare uh people to use and the sprawl that, that you're talking about is sort of the, the legacy hardware and, and old systems uh, was very challenging for us as a as a sort of a cutting edge next generation uh, cloud provider putting together a, a SaaS offering uh, because we had to support those old systems and, and uh, old versions of you know, operating systems, old versions of browsers uh, that ha that haven't gotten the patches to be able to turn off uh, older known weak encryption, uh, you know, handshake protocols and those types of things. Uh, and the, the sprawl also created situations where we had, uh, clients that really didn't even know what they had in their environment as we were coming in to deploy our tools and they would find things in the process of deploying our tool, uh, because of it. So this is, I, I don't have anything to add to Josiah's cause he hit on exactly the, the things that, um, you know, I would have said as well, but the uh, really the thought that I had is this is definitely an area in the IT space in healthcare that like healthcare industry desperately needs help and a change in the way IT is done because uh, the old way is is holding back 
the industry, <laughs> uh, especially from a security standpoint. And, uh, you know, it's it, it's going to get worse if we don't do something to make things better. The vendors are also trying to make the least number of assumptions, right? They don't want to assume that anybody has an IT staff like, like Greg in the office. So if it's one doctor and they can just launch TeamViewer and have somebody do it remotely, that is a zero assumption game. Well, thanks, Greg. I uh, appreciate you coming on the show and asking uh, questions. And uh, these were really good questions and great discussion. Awesome. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate your time. And now for our next caller, we're going to go back to the phones here. We have Mandy from the Denver area. Hello, Mandy. How are you? Hello. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. We're excited to have you on here. How can we help you today? What questions do you have? Well, I'm coming from a more mid-sized healthcare provider, 700-ish um, people. Uh, but in the nonprofit space, that doesn't mean there's plenty of resources. Um, and <clears throat> we're having the conversation as we try to grow our security program around what functions might be outsourced. And a big question for us is how we can vet those outsourcing providers to make sure that we are actually getting security, not just checking a box on an audit. Um, so do you have any feedback on how to evaluate third-party providers um, to make sure that we're actually upholding HIPAA, not just checking boxes? That's a good question. And I think hopefully one lots of people will eventually have when, when they decide to outsource I was ironically on a panel last week at a conference for practitioners in Texas about outsourcing. When should you hire an attorney? When should you hire an IT company? That kind of thing. I would equate it a little bit to sort of turning the question around, which is when I want to find a doctor, how do I do that? Right? I look at their credentials. I look at where they went to school, how many years of experience they have, if I can communicate with them, if it feels comfortable. I think finding an, a cybersecurity company is a little bit similar. Now, in cyber, there are many credentials. There's no one single thing that you should look for. People can get all kinds of certifications, and they're really hard to navigate. So I, I wouldn't put too much weight into those credentials. I think more important is, has the company you want to work with worked with people like you? Too often, I find that um, when a health clinic is looking for a company, that company has only worked with big health providers. They've never worked with somebody with 10 employees, or they've worked with 10 million people, but never, never 700, whatever you might have. And so that difference can be quite important. Once you find somebody who sort of understands your side, the other thing that's often a little bit hard to find are people with healthcare experience. There might be a lot of IT or cybersecurity companies who are brilliant and well-qualified who have never dealt with healthcare. And healthcare, I'll tell you, is special. It is different in the way that we do cybersecurity. And that matters a lot. So that, that is certainly one thing that I would ask too. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I, I think what I would add uh, as well as when you're doing your you know due diligence during the procurement process, uh, whether it's a cyber firm or other IT services or, or any sort of services that are going to be, especially if they're going to be folks that are going to have access to your data uh, or the patient data, uh, is 
don't just stop at the typical questionnaires that you might send out. Uh, I know they're really common in the vendor assurance side. They send them a questionnaire, they answer it, they send it back. You do some math in Excel or whatever, and you, you score it. Um, you can use third parties to help do that. There's third parties will actually do audits and those types of things and, and hold that information about that company as long as that company is also interested in having their information added to their database so that other folks can go to them sort of as an aggregator, a broker of these risk assessment uh, uh, services. But as you, as you go through the process, if you're not using one of those uh, types of services, uh, something else you can do is just just talk to them. Like as a CISO of a healthcare SaaS provider, I prefer just to have a meeting sometimes with the client uh, to talk through things that they were worried about because it allowed me to give them confidence that we've got this under control in ways that just sending back a, a questionnaire doesn't do. Uh, but you can ask questions in those uh, conversations, they're a little more high level, but that they can't speak to coherently if they're not doing the things and not familiar with how to protect your data. Uh, and so, you know, you can ask them about, you know, just describe to me your process for change control in your environment or something like that. Uh, how do you manage changes? Like if they can't speak coherently to those types of things, uh, you know, that's that's going to give you a, a pretty good indicator that maybe they're they're not as mature as you would want them to be. Uh, and then also, you know, at the end of the day, you know, make sure you get the, the BAA in place. Not that it actually will, you know, keep the breach from happening or those types of things, but at least it gets some sort of a, a contract in place where the other party is, you know, contractually committing to hold up their end of the bargain. Um, it's just it's just one more tool in, in your toolkit as you're, as you're trying to assess risk. And if you ask for a BAA and the, the, the salespeople or whoever don't even know what that is, that might be a red flag as well that they don't deal with healthcare enough to be able to, uh, you know, do what you need them to do. I'll also say that the vendor is interviewing you too, right? Well, we are also trying to figure out, is this a good fit? And when I am, when a client comes to me and says, can I help them? I'm also trying to assess: Does that client is that client serious about following through on the security, or is this a transaction? Right. I would prefer a relationship with a company where we can, where I trust them and they trust me. So I, I'll just say that it's a two-way interview. That's really fair. Very helpful. And I mean, that's how I prefer to do business with my vendors. I want long relationships because vendor onboarding is awful. Uh, but speaking of that, um, the follow-up question I had is, as an, an organization matures their security internally um, and maybe gets to the point resource-wise where not everything has to be outsourced anymore, what role or roles would you prioritize bringing in-house versus leaving outsourced um from a security maturity and a bang for buck standpoint. Yeah, let, let's start with bang for buck, because I think some of it is about cost. It is, is it more expensive for you to bring it in or to outsource? Um, are there low cost things that you can hire somebody to do right away that now you're paying an expensive company to do for you? Maybe that's installing patches. Maybe it's adding new users to the computer. Um, if you feel comfortable hiring somebody to do that, 
it just might make economic sense. Now, the flip side of that that I want to point out is what is risky? Maybe you want to continue to offload the risk to an external company uh, for things that are the, the most risky. And maybe that is monitoring the audit logs. Maybe you're, you think, well, the detection of something going wrong is a sort of high level skill. I would just assume pay more money to lower that risk as opposed to bringing that in first. So those are the kinds of things that I would look at is uh, what can we do economically internally and then eventually sort of reevaluate the risk. I, for example, I am always going to have cyber insurance. Uh, I think there are unexpected catastrophes, and that's outsourcing also. That's just outsourcing to an insurance vendor. Um, but that is one where I think I can never accept all that risk, and so I use insurance to help cover me. For me, like I, I would probably try to bring in-house some of the, the, the management functions first, like leadership management, uh, somebody who's sort of the, the security officer who can start handling... Uh, building a program and maintaining a program and maturing that program and let them be the one who then works with outsourced IT or in-house IT if if you're using in-house IT at that point. Um, and I would probably start in-housing some of the operational functions of IT and infrastructure first <clears throat> if, if I were growing uh, to that point where that started becoming useful uh, before I really start in-housing security team itself, like security operations, as Josiah was mentioning, you know, identifying what's going on in the network and sort of doing that investigation, um, bringing the, the security operations center, the, the SOC in-house is probably one of the last things you'll end up doing because staffing that 24-7, 365, it does get very expensive. The tools, the people, the expertise gets very expensive and you can do that fractionally through an outsourced stock much more affordably. Um, and and if you when you do bring that in-house too soon, you run the risk of you know, your folks inside when something happens, like that may be the first time they're ever seeing that thing. And they've got a lot more research and they may not pick it up as quickly. Whereas the SOC, like they've seen it three times this week already across all of their, their clients. Uh, so just simply having... Uh, so some of these things lend themselves better to outsourcing and and scale that you can you can get there. So my my path uh, would be to bring in the more the, the the leadership and the strategy side of it first, and kind of start bringing that in house to help supporting your IT folks and other business functions to build operational excellence. Make sure your your policies, your controls, your processes are are really nailed down, and you've got the right tooling to support those before you start bringing in security specific skill sets. That makes a great deal of sense because I could see leadership affecting culture too, in a way that somebody outsourced wouldn't have that same touch with the staff. I, I was going to say, I've seen even very mature organizations take exactly the same approach, which is we can afford to have somebody answer the phone, the help desk to change a password, somebody gets locked out. But even that mature organization doesn't have an incident response team if there's ransomware. They still outsource that. Um, some of the biggest named companies you see in the press, right? they still hire that expertise because it's very specialized. It would be much too rare and much too expensive to have in-house. So this is very common. 
Mandy, those were really great questions. I hope we were able to give you the information you needed. Yes, that was extraordinarily helpful in our planning and uh, helping set our direction on things and future budget justifications. Good. Good to hear. Thanks for coming on the show. So we had two really good uh, sets of questions from our callers today. Um, do you have any any closing thoughts or, or you know, just sort of summarize, um, you know, the, the key takeaways based on what we've we've talked about today? Yeah, this is a huge area, and I, I'm glad that we got to delve into a couple of the specifics. Um, again, I think cyber hygiene is a really um, important place to start, and people forget it at, no matter how big or small uh, the healthcare organization is. But it, but it's so useful. It, we tend to grab onto these really um, sort of glamorized cyber attacks that we hear about in the press, even if they're not the most common. Uh, I think it's more important for us to, to, to worry about the more common problems first, um, even though they don't seem quite as glamorous. So that's where I would sort of focus attention. Really good point. I think so the things that I, I hope other folks also will, will take away from this is just, you know, you, you've got to start with understanding where you are uh, before you can figure out where you're going to go. And, you know, you were talking about risk assessments and, and, and those types of things early on. And I think that's a really important thing for, uh, for folks, if you're building a, a security program to do it strategically by taking time to gain that situational awareness and make your strategic plan instead of just doing things. Uh, and it's, it's really important to, to do that. And it helps you focus then on, you know, what is the true goal of the folks that you're you're serving there, and and in healthcare, it's providing care to patients. It's not you know, being secure doesn't exist for its own sake. It it's all there to protect the patients and the patients' data. So, uh, I think that's that's the other thing is that everything's subservient to what uh, what the, the ultimate goal of of the work that's being done is. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Josiah. This has been fantastic. Great conversation. Uh, where uh, where can folks find you on the internet if they want to follow up and see what you're doing next? Yeah, I enjoyed being here. Uh, my website is designersecurity.com. Uh, that is a fine way to reach out to me about security of any kind. Um, I continue to do writing and research and, and talks like that. So I hope to see people at one of those events. Awesome. Thank you very much. And uh, also a huge thank you to our callers today. I really appreciate them uh, calling in and asking their questions because a, a call-in show doesn't work without the callers. So thanks, everybody. Uh, this has been episode two of the Mindful Business Security Show. Be sure to click the subscribe button. And more importantly, please share the show with others. That'll really help us out. I'm Accidental CISO. And until next time, stay mindful. Don't miss our next episode. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast for show information and links to our social media pages. This has been the Mindful Business Security Show brought to you by Focivity.